Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. I'm Oliver Hartwig and today we're joined by a special guest, Damien Grant, the 104th most popular columnist on stuff as he is usually introduced on the Working Group podcast by Martin Bradbury. But actually, just two disclaimers to start with. Damien is a member of the New Zealand Initiative and he's one of my favorite columnists and that's why I've invited him. Welcome, Damien. Thank you, Oliver. I've invited you specifically because you've triggered me with your last column because you mentioned Germany. And I just want to put it on the record. You started it. <laughs> yes. And you mentioned in your last column the differential of people actually just leaving East Germany yes. to West Germany before they built the wall. And then for some weird reasons, you drew a parallel to New Zealand. Yes. What was the thinking behind that? Well... It was a little bit disingenuous. I was hoping the numbers would be more favourable to, to the narrative. It's a classic case, Oliver, where you, you you decide the outcome that you want and then you go looking for the data to confirm it. But it was it was interesting. It worked out that in the last year before they built the wall, it was six Germans per thousand who were going across. East Germans to, East to, Germans. to the west. Yep. East Germans to the west. And in New Zealand, when you have a look at those going from New Zealand to Australia it was six per thousand who were leaving. And so that is a, it is not quite at, at the level, but I mean, we're not a communist dictatorship, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, it, it, was, it was interesting to see, to try and put in context the number of New Zealanders who are, who are choosing to leave. Now there was some New Zealanders who were coming back as well, right? So there, and there were far more, um, New Zealanders returning, then there were uh, West Germans going to the east. And there was a time, I think around 2016, 17, when New Zealand actually had a positive gain of New Zealanders returning, or at least Australians also moving to New Zealand. In, in 2017? I think around that time, we were for one brief year actually running a net positive migration um, that must have been Australia. must have been a, a statistical anomaly. We do it, it, well, actually, it was because that's the one thing I was going to ask you. You make this sound in your column as if this is a relatively recent phenomenon, when in fact it's been going for decades, probably, right? Well, yeah, it has because there's about five hundred and sixty thousand New Zealanders who are currently living in Australia, and that and see, and that that is just so telling. And, and so I go back and I, I look at the 2025 task force headed up by Dr. Bryce Wilkinson, who of course works for the initiative, and un, Honourable David Cagle as well. And they make the comment back then, <coughs> that 14 years ago, they make the comment that the fact that there are half a million New Zealanders who have chosen to move across the Tasman, that that should be that should tell us something. That should say something to us. That is ten percent of our population who are choosing to make Australia their home, and it's a number that continues to incrementally grow up. So, what is what is happening? What is causing that? And I guess there's there's two things that spring from from that. One, to some extent, when you have a situation like that, as you know, the Irish have, and the Canadians have, and the Mexicans have, you know, you've got a big brother. They're just bigger. They're just wealthier. That's going to happen to some extent, and, and okay, right, we just need to accept that. But there's another aspect to it, I think, which we're not really dealing with. The fact that that, that pressure valve release is there means that we face an existential risk that Australia potentially doesn't. Because if you're Australian and you want to leave, you've got to go and get a visa and you've got to go all of this. There's... 
there is search costs, I guess, in lack of a better word, and <clears throat> there's a transaction cost to leave. You don't have an automatic right to leave. Whereas a, a, a New Zealander does have an automatic right to leave, which means we face a real challenge and a real problem in that our best and brightest can leave. And I don't think that we really kind of are owning up to that. And, and some people are critical of my column saying, oh, well, look, they have relatively high tax in Australia as well. It, it doesn't matter. Australia can have terrible policies. So long as they are consistently 30 to 35% wealthier than we are, that's the reality that we need to confront here in New Zealand. And a lot of our policymakers are not confronting it. And it's a relatively common phenomenon around the world. If you've got countries that are close by and that are culturally similar and if one country is richer than the other it doesn't matter whether it's larger or smaller then you will have some incentive to leave i mean you can see this actually between germany and switzerland switzerland is the number one destination for germans leaving the country because it's richer and it speaks german kind of kind of <laughs> if you say so yep so what should new zealand then do i mean obviously you are not advocating building a wall that would be really difficult <laughs> We did for about 18 months, we okay. had a war. Well, the I mean, one of the advantages that we have had historically is that we have had lower taxes. And what that has meant is that although you earn more money in Australia, you are taxed at a slightly higher rate than Australia. But in New Zealand... We've had, we've had lower taxes typically, you know, corporate taxes and, and marginal uh, income taxes, and we haven't had... They've got a whole raft of other taxes in Australia, compulsory super and all of that other sort of stuff. And also easier taxes, I must say. I had to file tax returns in Australia, and they typically took me a weekend, and here I don't even have to do that. Well, there's, there's, a, there's two aspects to that. So one of the... Again, one of the criticisms of my column was that Australia does have you know, similar in some instances, higher taxes. But Australians also have an awful lot of get-out-of-tax cards you can pay. So they have the, the headline rate of, of taxation, and then it's the taxation that you actually pay. And there's a lot of ways, a lot of loopholes that the Australians have that we, we don't that's have. True. So that's a, there is there is a little bit misleading when you look at the high rates of, of tax uh, there. Um, but, the, uh, but the other reality that we've got to grapple with is because we we have not been indexing our rates, I think that the, the rates were changed in 2010. So, you know, the currency has probably been devalued 25%, possibly more, since the rates were last set. And so we've had significant margin creep, which means that if you're earning $50,000 or $100,000 a year in New Zealand, you, although you're um, in real terms, your income between 2010 and 2023 might be the same, you're paying substantially more in tax. And again, what you're looking at is if you're, you're 23 years old, you've finished your university degree or your trade or whatever it is, or even if you're you know, a, a hardworking, unskilled employee, you have a look at Australia, you've got a 25 to 35% delta in your earning capacity over a lifetime. And we need to think, what are we doing to encourage those people to stay, because at the moment, all of the incentives are driving them away. Mm. Back to the migration statistics. Yes, the numbers are ugly, but then again, they haven't really been different 20 years ago. What has changed, though, is the mood, I think. 
I remember last year there was a survey showing that one in five New Zealanders think was thinking about leaving the country. Yeah. And just a couple of days after your column ran, there was another survey. I'm not sure whether you've seen that. No. Apparently, it's one in three workers now considering leaving New Zealand. So even though the absolute numbers haven't really changed much, there seems to be a greater willingness to consider migration. Do you detect that as well? I, I, do, I do. I have, in my staff, I have a, a large number of relatively young professionals and I have a fair number of former staff members now working across the Tasman, right? And so that, that is something that, that we see. But I guess the other thing, it's not just that, you think about who is thinking about leaving and who is staying. And that's the real challenge. And right? who is leaving and who is staying. Yeah. So those with get up and go, as the old drink goes, are, are, are getting up and going. Those, Which is why we are still here. Yes. That's why, <laughs> no, well, let's, let's, let's not forget, Oliver, both of us, you know, because I'm Australian and you're German, both of us actually chose to come here. So, But, but both of us also hold New Zealand passports, right? Yes, yes, I have a New Zealand passport. Yes, um, me too. <laughs> yeah, but so we, we are committed. Well, I'm I'm committed, as we were talking before. You still have options, Oliver. You're younger and your skills are more transferable. Absolutely. I can always move to Portugal. Yeah, <laughs> I, by contrast, I'm, look, I, I had a hard time getting an insolvency license here. I think my chances of getting one across the Tasman are pretty close to zero. <laughs> but, but, that, but that's also... That's also a part of what I was saying is that there are a lot of people like me who have non-transferable qualifications and because occupational licensing is a global problem, there are a lot of people and, and your businesses are here, you've got property, you've got infrastructure, you've got networks. Okay, so your, you're basically trapped. And there's, there's a lot of people like me who are trapped. And so if you want to introduce the wealth tax, then you're going to be able to ping people like, I mean, we can move our wealth overseas in, in advance and I would recommend people would start thinking about doing that. But there is, a, there is a large amount of wealth and individuals trapped here. But if you're in your 20s, you're not trapped by that. You, you have the option to go. And so even if we have a change of government and look increasingly like the, that we will, you don't, you can, you can forecast out what's going to happen. I've written a couple of columns about a wealth tax. I think a wealth tax is going to come into New Zealand because you've got the Māori Party and the Greens um, advocating it. You've got the current Minister of Finance and the former Minister of Revenue in the Labour Party who wanted to have a wealth tax and a, and a, and a capital gain tax potentially. The So I can imagine at some point a wealth tax is going to be part of Labour Party's uh, formal policy and in three, six, nine years they will get in. So unless something really significant happens, and we, I think we're going to talk about that in a second, unless something really significant happens, a wealth tax becomes an inevitability. And again, if you're, if you're a young professional and you're thinking, okay, you know, Australia might have a capital gains tax, that's ugly, but it's nowhere near as ugly as a wealth tax. It's, it's your, we are creating long-term um, disincentives for people to stay here. So in your column, you write it is rational to leave New Zealand if you're in that age bracket and you're a little bit more ambitious. Are you actually recommending people in that age bracket should leave New Zealand? Well, I don't, I don't, I need, I need somebody to pay our pensions, Oliver. So I, uh, maybe we need to build the wall to, to keep them in. Well, then let's phrase the question a little bit differently. We both have children. They are boys. They are both 10 years old. Yes. If your son 
maybe 10, 12 years down the track, decides that actually New Zealand isn't for him and decides to move to either Australia or somewhere completely different, would you support that move? Yes. And would you rec would you go so far as to recommend it to your son? Yes. And if your son, against your great advice, decided to stay in New Zealand and maybe study at a New Zealand university, would that make you deeply unhappy? Well, no, I wouldn't make... I mean, <laughs> I, I would be happier if he stayed, <laughs> right? So... I feel an obligation to give my son the best objective advice that is in his interest, not necessarily mine and his mother's. So that's kind of the role of a, of, of a parent. But obviously I would like to see him stay in, in New Zealand. I'd like to see him grow up. But the, you know, would I be happy if he studies at a New Zealand university? I mean, I'm not 100% convinced that Australian universities are necessarily better. I think that the New Zealand universities are five to ten years ahead of Australians, and but they, the Australian universities do seem to be heading in the same general direction. I know you've got a policy paper, the initiative down, I was on bloat on, on New Zealand universities about the explosion of non-academic staff in inside I don't know what it's like in Australia, but my suspicion is that it's, it's very not similar. far behind. Yeah, so it so it's heading. We're, we're all we are all heading in the same direction. I'm not. Wouldn't be that concerned because he's coming, and I suspect, I suspect is, is your son coming from you know family, and the and the values that you pick up in the family are are more powerful in most cases than than what you're going to pick up in a in a school and university, right? So those cultural values. They are enduring, and but one of the real failures is where we, you know, part of the the advantage of a public education system is that it allows people from dis disadvantaged backgrounds, where education and learning and books are not part of that tradition inside that family, to be given the opportunity to. To, to lift off mm -hmm. and 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 I think that we we are damaging our children with the current setup which is at which I think is actively encouraging people not to learn and I think that we're a similar thing in universities I don't disagree with you at all on education um, it's basically supported by all the publications we have had here at the initiative but I wonder whether it's not a little bit defeatist because I was asking you about a potential decision your son might take in 10 or 12 years' time. Do you really think that the decline of New Zealand is inevitable or could it be turned around in the meantime? No, it's not. Of course it's not inevitable. Goodness gracious me. They <laughs> so what would have to happen to turn New Zealand around? And how likely is that, given that we've lost so many good people already? Well, I'd, I'm not that concerned about the loss, right? So we were talking about Ireland, we're... we're basically visit there. I mean, Ireland had a famine. They lost a million people to the famine. They lost a couple of million people to to, 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 to migration. But there's always... There are 35 million Americans who claim they have Irish heritage now. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, sure, cool. But that's the power of Catholicism, I suppose. But every <laughs> year, there's a fresh crop of Irishmen, you know, and and so, every, and, and so you've seen an Ireland, you know, where... And we'll talk about that a bit later on today. You know, you've, there's there's a fresh crop, there's a new ideology, and and, and bang, they're off. And so every year there's a there's a fresh crop of uh, of of Kiwis. And so, in answer to your question, can it be turned around? Yes, it can. But the challenge is, 
it's not, we have this view, and it's not an unreasonable view, that the, the tone is set from, from Wellington. And I think that's a real problem. But, I, but there is an element of, of, of truth to it. But if the, if the tone changes, and it needs to be more than just a tone set from the, from, from the top, but, ch- but changing the government is, a, as I think you, you said to Sean Plunkett, a necessary but... Only, not a sufficient condition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. We, we need more than that. We, we need a, 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 a rethinking about how we view the country. What is it that we're about? What is it that we're doing? And to such an extent that when there is a change of government, the values that drive this country, we 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 believe in, in, in it, we believe in equal opportunity in reality, not 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 in some you know quasi theoretical way that we're currently running. Do we, we believe in freedom? Well, no, I don't. I, I don't think we do believe in freedom. I think maybe at one point we we did, but I mean, we're talking about you know regulators uh, coming in for for, uh, for speech. I noticed even you know Boucher is saying, "Hey, you know, we're not very comfortable about this." There's a. I I don't think that a lot of New Zealanders really do believe in freedom. I think that, and and I think that has been a, a cultural shift. We are. Do we, we believe self, in technological progress? We 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 self censor. Mm-hmm. A lot, so we're talking about a, nas- a national narrative, right? Mm-hmm. I think we have a national narrative, which is New Zealand is a, is, is a is a racist country. New Zealand mistreats its indigenous population. New Zealand does all of these terrible things, and but it's very important that we 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 honour Tiriya and all that sort of stuff, right? But that's relatively recent. It is it, it is it is recent, but I but but we have this narrative, but a lot of people simply don't believe in it. They are saying things that they do not believe to be true because that's what they need to do to get on. But even though that narrative is relatively recent, the economic malaise predates that. Yes, it it, it does. And so to to get back to the situation, because I, I I came to New Zealand about nineteen eighty eight in the dying days of the Longy was still prime minister, and then we had Palmer, and then we had Ruth Richardson, and there was okay the the glory days of reform were over, but there was still a belief in in the values that that Douglas had unlocked, right? Mm. And and that and that carried us a long way, and that required a certain popular mentality to succeed. And it was all the way through. It existed in the public service. It it existed, you know, people like Sir Bob Jones and so forth. We we honoured people like him. They were given knighthoods. People who succeeded in business were 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 considered. There was a fundamental inherent good to that. Now we look at people who are economically successful with some degree of mistrust. There is a view that if you accumulate wealth in New Zealand, you have somehow stolen it from somebody. You don't. We don't seem to understand that somebody who builds something like main freight, that they've built something from the ground up, that they are providing value in, in, in jobs, and that is a really useful and fantastic thing, and people like that should be given knighthoods, and if they're offered the knighthoods, they really should accept them. Yeah. But but that's but that's not how a lot of New Zealanders see it. They look at things like that with dishonesty, as with distrust, that somehow we've got this attitude that economics is a zero-sum game. If you've got a dollar, you've taken it off somebody else. And that was the conclusion of your column, really. And 
since you started talking about Germany, I just want to give you one example, actually, to show how difficult it is to change these mentalities. You mentioned, of course, East and West Berlin. Well, yeah. I can tell you, West Berlin was an island within communist East Germany. Yes. And for 40 years after the war, it was subsidized by the rest of Western Germany because which company would have liked to be in an island state in the middle of communism? So yeah. they got dependent on constant transfers from the West of the country. And after unification, of course, they had the misfortune of becoming the capital again. So now they were really dependent on government. <laughs> Yes. Does that remind you of something? And, well, <laughs> this we are in West Berlin now because oh, we're recording this in Wellington. We're recording yes. this in Wellington, and you know what? Fourteen thousand additional public servants since this government has has taken office. The vast majority of those people are in Wellington, and there's a real you know they call it the 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 lanyard set. Yeah, and and it's just so true. Twenty five percent of of Wellington votes Greens. There is a disconnect between this this city and the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. Another example from Germany. We need so if you look at East Germany, of course, they first had 12 years under the Nazis, and then they had another more than 40 years under the communists. So basically two and a half generations living without the experience of living in a democracy and in a market economy, and it takes time to actually change these mentalities. So back to New Zealand then. We have developed some mentalities that are really unhelpful if you want to grow a country, if you want to have a prosperous, successful country with a good economy. So how do we turn that around then? Well, that, I mean, does it take that long? I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what happened in East Berlin after the wall came down? I mean, how quickly did the cultural values of Germans in East Germany Change. Well, you can still see in opinion polls that there are market differences in opinion between East and West Germans, even more than 30 years after the fall of the wall. So some cultural predispositions are able to survive a long time. Even in religion, I understand this. Even, especially in religion. Which is which is really interesting. But then again, you, you have a look at the reforms of Deng Xiaoping. How quickly did Chinese change their attitude from you know, the Cultural Revolution to it doesn't matter whether the cat is black or white so long as it catches a mouse. I mean, that the, the transformation that happened in that country and in that economy was unbelievably fast. Why can't that happen here? Yeah, why can't it? Well, I don't know that, that because it you, can't. You seem, I think you seem I, to be quite pessimistic towards the end of the column. Yes, because I I do not have confidence in the in, in potentially the incoming national administration. That okay, they, and let's talk about that. That they... That they uh, when when you talk privately to some of the the national party MPs and they they say the right thing and I want I want to believe, um, but when I look back at the at the previous behaviour of national party administrations, I believe what David Seymour has said that they they simply implement the previous policies, whatever the policies they find they 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 do them well, and so the what I. Why I am pessimistic is I am not confident that Luxon and, and Willis and Bishop and so forth, if they come into office, will be as radical and as reforming as what they say they're going to be. And, you know, John Key talked a big game and then he got into power and, and you've got this blob, this extra 14,000 public servants. You've, you know, you... We, we're a 
um, you hear Nicola Willis talking about the Overseas Investment Act, right? And she says, oh, well, we'll loosen the restrictions about this and that. And somebody else says, well, why don't you just blow it up? Why, why, do, why do we have the Overseas Investment Act? Why don't we just throw it in the bin? And it was kind of like, oh, yeah. Mm. I think it was me asking that question at the event. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there was, and there's just a, and, you know, so you could you could say that to somebody in ACT and, and their instinctive, you know, I mean, they may not have turned their mind to the Overseas Investment Act, but if you ask them the question, their instinctive reaction, well, would you throw it in the bin? They, so, but even if you have a look at ACT, I mean, I know ACT has a lot, lot of libertarians in it. I suspect that the leader is a libertarian. But if you have a look at their policies, they are, they are not libertarian policies. They are... Well, they're operating on the political constraints. Yeah, they are. And so, you know, I felt much more comfortable supporting ACT when they got 0.3%. Now they're at 17. I'm thinking, oh, what do I really belong to? You just here? hate being in the mainstream. I, d I do. I'm a contrarian by nature. But... Um, but no, but I, but I, but I respect what they're doing because you know I asked David Seymour, you know, why don't you support the legalization of of heroin? And his answer was, well, you know, New Zealand doesn't even support the legalization of marijuana, so you pursue. He's in politics, so you, there's no point pursuing a policy that you're never going to win. So he, so actor sitting and saying, what are the What can we actually achieve? What can we get done? And I, and I think that is incredibly admirable, and and I, I admire. David and the rest of his party enormously for what they what they are trying to do, but ultimately, if we're going to change, if we're going to have that Ding's helping moment, there needs to be something that actually causes a massive reset, and that would be something like the prime minister turning around and saying, "Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to sell telecom, right? We're going to float the dollar. We we we're, we're just going to blow things up, and if it means we're a one-term administration." Do not care. I mean, you look at what Margaret Thatcher did, right? She got in there and it's almost like she, she thought she was going to be there for one term and she was just going to do everything. She was going to sell the state houses. She was just going to go for gold. And, you know, Arthur Scargill gave her another term and, and then Galtieri gave her another one, very kind of both of those gentlemen. And and you and you also see that in, in, in the Roger Douglas years, right? When, when the genie is let out of the bottle... All of these incredible things happen, but somebody needs to let the genie out of the bottle. And if it and if that happens, then I think that we we can get that Deng Xiaoping moment. Whether we do or not, I'm not optimistic. Well, to be fair to National, they have now committed to repealing the replacement of the IMA, should it go through in the next couple of weeks. They have committed to repealing the fair pay agreements nonsense. So... There will be some change from National because they have basically given ironclad guarantees on that. That's fantastic. They're going back to the same malaise and inactivity that they had when they left office six years ago. I mean, you know, if they just do something... So what they are saying is that we are going to unwind the worst policies of the tail end of this current administration They're not saying, okay, you go back and you have a look at Jim Bolger. Jim Bolger, they were so small, but they were so powerful. He had bulk funding for, for schools, right? Really simple policy. You give the principal the power to, to, 
to do things. And he had Crown Health Enterprises, right? So he said, all right, I've got a regional health authority and that regional health authority has to get you know, hip replacements and cataract surgeries, whatever. And and doesn't matter, you can get them from a Crown Health Enterprises or Southern Cross or Brightside or, or whatever it is. I'm not seeing anything from the National Party that even goes back to the mindset. Now, remember, um, Bolger lost his nerve, right? Mm-hmm. So he, he, he folded pretty quickly. But at, but at least he was heading along those those lines. That's now, of course, we don't know. Chris Luxon is a bit like you know <coughs> Schrodinger's infernal cat. I don't think we know what he will be like as prime minister. I suspect until that, he becomes the prime minister. I, I suspect that Chris Luxon probably doesn't really know. It's a bit like the Ukrainian prime minister, you know, president. He probably didn't know. What until, a great leader is within him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I. It's a willing suspension of disbelief. I want to believe in Chris Luxon. I've, he's he's certainly had he's got the managerial experience, right? You don't get to be the head of Air New Zealand. You don't, and you don't get to keep that job unless you've got some real political and managerial chops. I think he can do it. What I don't know is whether he will. Okay, there is this quip saying that every country, every people gets the government it deserves. Don't believe that. Not true. No, I don't. I mean, we might get a better government than we deserve. Yes, I, I, I think. I, I th- well, what I'm getting at is actually: Does the New Zealand population actually support reforms? Would it support reforms? The kind of tough reforms you have in mind? No, I don't. And but I don't think it matters. I mean, New Zealanders did not vote for co-governance. New Zealanders did not vote for floating the dollar. So we don't. We. I mean, see the the idea of a democracy. It, you know, we we don't live in some Athenian democracy where, where where all of the property only men get together in the agora and, and vote for something. Democracy is about the, the the core of democracy. What it means is that you, as an individual, have rights against the state, and 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 we live in a country of laws, and we don't live in a country of 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 a rule by. By, by tyranny, a rule by fear, a rule by man. Well, that's basically the rule of law, not so much democracy. Yeah, and that's and 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 so in a democracy, you you elect people, right? You elect a sovereign for three years or five years, depending on the system, and and then 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 away they go, right? So there is this kind of, you know, you go back to the nineteen seventies and 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 you ask the population, hey, you know, we currently live in a bicultural, happy little society. How do you feel about an immigration policy that is going to turn us into a multi-ethnic society where Anglo-Saxons are, you know, become the minority by you know twenty fifty whatever? And there would have been a hard no, right? You know, you ask the population in nineteen fifty, should we get rid of the death penalty? Hard no. So we don't, we don't support. The policies necessarily we elect the government and the government does whatever whatever it is that, that, that they're going to do. So we didn't vote for the 1984 reforms. So and I, but answer a question: Does the population get the government that they deserve? No, I I think that's that's unfair. The Chinese do not deserve the communist government. Okay, but in the end, these reforms that you have in mind probably need some sort of popular support to survive long term. Yes, they they do, but I I I think that support. So we have at the moment, I think, an artificial degree of support for things like co-governance and so forth, because because it's so institutionalised now. If you want to, we were talking to somebody yesterday, and, and they work in a sector, and if they want to get government funding, they 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 have to 
put in oh, all of this stuff about Tirio and Mataranga Mari and whatever. Okay, and so lots of people are doing this. And the schools are teaching it, the universities are teaching it, we're being told that we are a, a, a racist society and all of this sort of stuff, right? So there's a there's a kind of a manufactured consent, but I don't think it's real. I think you can you can pull the band aid off and there and there is a there is a real belief system sitting underneath there. But but maybe you come back to what you're saying about East East Germany, you know, maybe we've been living in this regime so long that some of the some people have been saying this stuff for so long that maybe they actually believe it. Maybe it's We're becoming institutionalized. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and that, and that's that would be a concern, right? I mean, you know, you you have a look at religion in this general as you're talking before. There, there has been a a permanent change in the way that that population thinks about their place in the universe. You think about somebody who believes in a god and somebody who doesn't. They live in they live in intellectually separate universes, right? And so, the government over a what, 30, 40 year period was able to change the intellectual universes that East Germans believe in. So we've been living in, in that world here as well. Okay, it's, that's, an un, that's an unfair comparison, to be fair. But where if you keep telling people again and again, this is the way the world is, maybe it gets very, very difficult and a lot of people are invested in, in, in the world that, you know, that, that a wealth tax is good, that rich people are bad, that the market is an inherently evil place. And so maybe turning that around would require a real power of, of, of leadership and, and governance. But I mean, but we know it's true, Oliver, right? We we know markets work. You know, we spent a week in Ireland. We've seen the power that real reform, that real economic liberalism can get. I mean, we're you know, talking to people who who wanted foreign direct investment, which in, in in New Zealand foreign direct investment is literally a crime. You can't own sensitive land. You can't invest in forestry. You can't buy anything worth more than a hundred million bucks without without the government approval. And and yet, in a relatively short period of time, where those policy changes, people see the real results, and they and they become believers so it's 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 possible i always suspect that that deep down you're an optimist final <laughs> oh sorry oliver I when you didn't when mean you, to trigger you when you when you when you wake up in the morning with a face like mine and you still go out to the world you require an enormous amount of optimism just well, to confront the day well then in my final question i just want to check whether you're whether you have a sense of creativity as well about you You're a liquidator. Yes. So I suspect you wouldn't fancy becoming a politician. You stay a liquidator because you're good at that. Okay, if I put you in charge now to liquidate three things about the current government or the current government structure, what would you like to liquidate? Oh, that's easy. The first thing I do is I would sell the schools. The reason why charter schools failed was there was only six of them, right? You think about what Pebble, Pebble did with telecom. He sold it, right? You sell the thing for a dollar. I don't care. I'd take the two and a half thousand schools and I would say, I'd, I'd sell them, bang, right? Sell them for a dollar, sell them to the local board of trustees, whatever it is done. Once they're gone, then that's almost impossible for the state to, so you, the state can pay for it, but the state doesn't need to run them, right? If we if we want the prime minister to go to New York, the prime minister does not need to go on a government plane. They can. They can well, no, it doesn't go on right? a government plane. It takes two. 
takes two because <laughs> the, the plane doesn't work, right? So that, that'd be the first thing I'd liquidate. The second thing I'd liquidate is the health sector, exactly the same. I would sell all of the government hospitals, sell them, bang, done. All of that infrastructure is gone. Again, if government wants to pay for your hip replacement, that's that that's great. But that hip replacement is going to get done in a in a private sector, and that will be great for the nurses and the teachers because then they've got a competitive environment and 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 they could pay for it. The third thing I would do is I would liquidate all of those in in charge of occupational licensing. Right? If you want to be a teacher, it should be, the principal of the school should decide whether you want to be a teacher. If you want to be a, a nurse or a dental technician or whatever it is, I it's like okay. We have this. We have this view, and it's a paternalistic, arrogant view. Oh, you want to go to a dentist? Well, you can only go to a dentist that we, the government, thinks has got the requisite skills. And because if we if we don't do that, you're going to go to some backroom butcher who's going to be terrible. But I mean, it's not going to not going to happen. I'm not going to go to if I run Smile Dental. I'm going to want to have good people who are providing the good service because if I get a reputation for being the murder house, people are not going to come in. So the third thing I would liquidate was all those in charge of uh, occupational licensing, except, of course, those in the insolvency industry because that must be regulated because I want my economic rent. Wonderful. I suspected as much. So with that much optimism and uh, with that much to liquidate, I can only thank you for being on our podcast. It was a pleasure to have you again. And I uh, look forward to more conversations in the future. Cheers. Thank you, Damien Grant. Right.